Father, thank you for this morning. We're grateful for the time that we have to, uh, to gather and to study your word. Pray that you'd be with me as I teach and walk through uh, this uh, content and all of us as we meditate together on the Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, hope you got a handout uh, week two. Uh, we're zeroing in on two aspects of the uh, overview that I did last week on, on Christian maturity. Uh, knowledge and faith. And so there's a lot of uh, material to cover. But in my usual pattern, I would love to be interrupted throughout the, the morning. Uh, so as I'm teaching, if you have a, a question or a comment, just raise your hand and I would be delighted to stop and uh, uh, hear what you have to say. If you have a, uh, have a question to do what I can to answer it. But what we're trying to do in this class is just four weeks, uh, basically overviewing an almost 500 page book. So there's a lot of material to cover. Um, so we have to kind of choose a level uh, that will get us through um, these two topics. And we're looking today at an overview of, of spiritual maturity and zeroing in on two aspects, knowledge and faith. So just by way of review, last week uh, we said that God left us here on earth for, for the purpose of growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ, sanctification, and then service, uh, leading others to Christ, helping others to grow. Uh, that's why we're here. And uh, that gives a tremendous worth to our days on, on earth. We have, there's value to our time here on earth. And uh, making progress in holiness and uh, leading others to Christ and being a blessing to others, that's worth, that's worth living. Now, as we zero in on sanctification, uh, what we're trying to do is give a kind of a, a goal of what we're aiming for in Christ-likeness, uh, sanctification. So Christ-likeness is the single word that I would say. Holiness, sanctification is about imitating Christ. We broke that into four main categories in, in our overview last week. Knowledge, faith, character, and action. And today we're going to zero in on knowledge and faith. So in the knowledge section, there are two aspects of knowledge that I want to zero in on. Factual and experiential. Factual knowledge and experiential knowledge. A spiritually mature person has a wealth of personal experience in God's world, seeing God's power at work. Such a person has lived through success and failure, through pleasure and suffering, and has learned the character of God and truth in those rich experiences. So factual knowledge and experiential knowledge. We're going to have a bunch of knowledge of the Bible and we're going to live through experiences. And then faith. This is just overview. Uh, the overview of uh, total confidence and assurance that invisible spiritual uh, things taught in the Bible are actually true. We're going to go through all this in detail. Uh, a strong and vivid conviction of personal sin and how much God hates that indwelling sin. A spiritually mature person, third, actively trusts in Jesus constantly as all-sufficient Savior, refuge, provider, shield. And uh, a spiritually mature person has strong assurance um, both in this age and in the next. Uh, such a person is confident that God will keep all his good promises. And then finally, a spiritually mature person is guided by Christ through uh, the indwelling spirit and the word of God. So these are the things we're going to talk about in the uh, knowledge and faith section. Character that we're not going to get to today. We'll get to God willing next week. We'll describe in those five ways affection, desire, will, thought, and emotions, and then action, uh, habitual obedience. So that's the big picture. Now today we're going to zero in on knowledge and faith. So first of all, factual knowledge. A spiritually mature person knows the Bible very well. Uh, he or she has a wealth of biblical knowledge, a mind saturated in scripture. Such a person also understands the deep things of our faith and the theological truths that flow from the verses of scripture. Now when someone is born again, um, uh, they're a new Christian, we could call them a babe in Christ. Um, they have full forgiveness of sins. They're adopted into the family of God. Um, they have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They have a guaranteed uh, uh, place in heaven. Nothing can change that. But they are a babe in Christ. They're immature. And one of the simplest ways of knowing their immaturity is they just don't know the Bible very well. They don't know much about the Bible. They know enough uh, to be saved. They know what we would call the milk of the word. So just what does that mean to you, the idea of spiritual milk? What does that word mean to you? There's milk and meat. What is milk? Okay. So what does that refer to, biblically? Babies, they drink milk. Okay. And not ready for solid food yet. Okay. So what are the milk truths of the Bible? What would we say are milk truths? Things that you need to know to be saved. What, 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 are, what, are the, uh, what is spiritual milk? 
basics of the gospel, so knowing who God is, who we are, and what, how we're separated from him by our sin and saved by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I say that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so the basic central facts of the gospel are milk. All right? Uh, we've broken it into four headings, knowledge, uh, sorry, uh, God, man, Christ, and response. So there's some things about God, that God exists, that he made the world, that he's good and loving and holy, and his laws, um, his moral requirements on us, uh, that we are created in the image of God, created for a relationship with God, that we have violated God's laws, uh, broken his commands. You need enough, uh, you need to know enough of God's law the Ten Commandments to, in order to be saved. So some of that. And then Christ, the basics of Christ's life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and then the need for repentance and faith. I would call all of that milk. All of that is the, are the basic Christian doctrines that you need. Well, one thing that you know about the Bible is it says a lot more than that. <laughs> okay, uh, A huge, much more than that. The Bible actually says more about every topic than you think it does. That's one thing I've learned from years of memorizing and looking at details. The Bible says a lot more than you think it does. It's a lifetime study. And so to go on in Christian maturity is to go from the milk to the meat, to go from the basics of the Christian gospel to more and more detailed knowledge. And that's what we're talking about here, facts. All right, now... We're dealing with your brain. The concept of the, of the brain, the human brain, is the most incredible, complex creation in the physical universe. The average human brain has 100 billion neurons, as many as there are trees in the Amazonian rainforest. Uh, the brain is the center of being. It is the center of mood, memory, instinct, will, emotion, decision, all bodily functions. Uh, it's the seed of individuality and personal history. You train your brain with every experience you go through in life. Our powers of interpretation and reason are centered in the brain. And here the five senses uh, bring all of their packets of information and deposit them for analysis. That's what's going on in here. And in the mind, in the thinking, is the battle of salvation fought every day. It comes down to thinking. Out of the thinking, that's how we live. Can someone read Ephesians 4 for us? Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. So I will tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what I did in, that, uh, in your handout is I, I kind of highlighted visually for you the thinking parts of Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. First of all, Paul describes the unregenerate life the life of a lost person and the way they think. They, uh, they have futile thinking. They think in a futile sort of way. Uh, they are darkened, it says, in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Uh, they're things they don't know. Uh, and it, that ignorance is tied to the hardening of their heart. They, they don't know these things because they don't want to know them. They are hostile to spiritual truth. That's describing, Paul's describing the non-Christian life. Uh, and then that leads to, it leads to a whole bunch of wickedness, uh, ever-increasing wickedness, uh, that, as he describes, a continual lust for more. He says, you, however, Christian people, that's not how you learned Christ. Again, there's that sense of learning Christ. You heard of him through the gospel, and you were taught 
in him. I could have highlighted that. That's a thinking word. You are taught the, the facts of the gospel in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. It, it was a, a, a feast of truth when you heard the gospel. And uh, you believed that. You became born again. And then you were taught to live a sanctified life. This is the internal journey now. You were taught re with regard to the way you used to live to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And then it says to be made new in the attitude of your mind. This is almost exactly the same teaching as Romans 12, which is, says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It is out of thinking differently that you will live differently. So I say that factual knowledge gained from the Bible primes the pump for everything in the Christian life. It starts there. It's not everything. But everything starts with the precepts of the truths of the Bible in every case. So it all starts with, with being made new in the attitude of your minds, feeding on God's, God's truth, and then to put on the new self which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That phrase, like God in true righteousness and holiness, equals Christ-likeness, equals holiness. There's just different ways of saying the same thing. So fundamentally, these are very important verses here. What you used to be, the transformation that happened, and now the ongoing transformation in the Christian life. But you see how important the mind is. It's saturated in this uh, paragraph here. So scripture is essential to this battle, as we'll see. Now I have an image here, an old saying, Rome wasn't built in a day took uh, 300 years for the Etruscan village to kind of take control of the central part of the Italian peninsula and then another 200 years to build a worldwide empire and then it just kept developing after that. So the idea is it takes a long time to be mature doctrinally. It doesn't happen overnight. Somebody's born again last Wednesday, you know, this week they're not mature. It's just a habit of taking in God's word, of feeding on it, of not wasting a day, of just getting your mind into the scripture, getting your mind into the Bible, and, and just feeding and feeding. Um, and so in my book I wrote this, in like manner but for infinitely more glorious and eternal purposes, God desires to build what I call a city of truth in the heart of all of his children. The city of truth, better than Rome. It's erected so-called brick by brick, that is, line by line of scripture, precept by precept, truth by truth, over years of time spent in his word and in his world. Theological truths, in all their depth and breadth, take years to develop and take root in the human heart, resulting in an increasingly mature worldview by which the Christian understands everything that happens to him in this world and by which he lives his life. So, that's the project here. The idea is, you, th you think of a well-designed city and all of the systems in the city, transportation, communication, water, sewage, electricity, you know, power, all of those things that go into a successful city, you know, well-planned city, the, the traffic flow, all of those things. And city planners are constantly looking on the city as it grows and develops, etc. Well, the same thing is going on in the mind and the heart of a Christian. There are systems of truth that get developed and it takes a long time for that to build, to build up. We, unfortunately, are very impatient. We're an impatient people, you know. Ten easy steps to Christian maturity, you know. Google it. I don't know. I've never done that, but see if you can find. Maybe there's a website out there that'll give you some quickie, you know, insights to get there. There just is no shortcut. It just doesn't happen, but we're used to having it you know, very, very quickly. We're used to kind of a vending machine or, a, or an app kind of uh, approach where instantly you're going to become mature. It just isn't, it isn't the case. All right, so what are the, I said brick by brick or line by line precepts by, by precepts. How many facts are there in the Bible? It's like, I don't even know how to answer you, Pastor. All right, well, here's some examples. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we're right away told something. All right, off and running. Genesis 1.1. Abraham believed the Lord and, and he credited to him his righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. Paul thinks that's important, quotes it in Romans 4. But you read it, all right? Ah, here we go. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Pua, Jashub, and Shimron. Bet you didn't know that. If I, if I covered that over, I said, all right, somebody give me this, the four sons of, of Issachar. It's like, all right, I have to glance down. So I didn't know we were having a final exam today on the genealogies in 1 Chronicles. 
It's in the Bible, though. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, what's interesting about that verse, relevant to the point I'm making right now, Paul says there, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. What do those words mean, as of first importance? High priority. Would you say that the sons of Issachar is equally important to Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures? That's an easy one, guys. I know it's early on Sunday morning, but no. Are they equally true? Yes. So there's a hierarchy of significance of the facts. But there's nothing in the Bible that God would say is irrelevant or spurious or superfluous. Everything has a purpose, though not, not everything's equally weighty or significant, all right? So we can't read anything in the Bible, including the genealogies of 1 Chronicles 1 through 10, and say this is worthless or vanity. It all has a purpose. And, and also I would say, sometimes you can be surprised to find out how significant something was. You might have read it the first time and think this is not that important. And the Lord will show you sometime in the next month or even sooner, yeah, that actually was more important than you thought it was. What I get out of the genealogy of 1 Chronicles, said this before, it's, a hard, it's hard to see the importance. But what I do get is that the overwhelming majority of the people listed in those genealogies are obscure. And obscure Peter, people matter to God. Why would that be important for you? I'm there you go. <laughs> Not meaning to be insulting, okay? But despite the fact that I am obscure, my life matters to God. I think that's important. Now God takes 10 chapters of genealogy to make that point. All right, lots of names of people you don't know. God knows them. And I think that's at least a significant indicator that your life matters. That's all. And I think it's important to continue. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Revelation 1.7. That's a future statement. All right, that's just an example. In my book, I had like eight or ten more bullets. The point is, the facts just keep coming. It just, just keeps on coming and coming. The information, a river of information, lots of history with Old Testament with kings of Israel and Judah and what they did and things that happened and battles they fought. It's just so much information and it just keeps coming. And all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training a righteous so that man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's it, everything. So it's just this river of truth keeps coming in. So you're on a lifetime journey of knowledge. Altogether, the Bible contains over 31,000 verses, 775,000 words, three quarters of a million words uh, in an average English translation. That's an incalculable treasure trove of spiritual truth given to us by the goodness of God. And all scripture, that I just said, is God-breathed and useful. You may not know how it's useful, but it's just helpful to start with the basic premise that what I'm reading in the Bible is God-breathed and useful, though I don't know how. So learn it, store it up. Uh, that's, it just, and then little by little, this city of truth gets built in your mind where you start to gain a worldview. City of truth to me equals worldview. How you look at everything, your theology of everything, it's just getting built. God then calls us on a lifetime of journey of discovery in the vast world of the biblical text. There are 66 books to be learned, hundreds of people and place names, overlapping chronologies, unfolding history, deepening themes. Some passages tell us what to do quite directly. Philippians 2.14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Boy, that's a complex verse, don't you think? Deep theology. I've got I to go to the New Testament scholars to know that one. No, you don't. That's about as plain as anything. Do you guys know what complaining is? Have you ever done it? <laughs> Did you do any this morning? I won't ask, all right? But the fact is, probably so. And what about arguing? Complaining or arguing are two of the basic sins of the Christian life. What does that verse tell you? Don't do it. All right, sometimes the Bible is really that simple. It's just, it's as blunt as a, as a brick. It's just, just right there. It tells you what to do. Others, like Isaiah's oracles in Isaiah 13 through 23, I know because I preached through it. 
And as you're going through the oracles on Moab and Ammon and all that, and you're preaching to a, a, a 21st century audience, the question of relevance is pretty acute. You got people that are living their lives or doing their work as doctors, researchers, bankers, construction workers, they come to FBC, and they're hearing an oracle against Moab. I'm very aware of what that might feel like for the average hearer. So I was constantly trying to figure out how could I speak to the relevance of these oracles about nations that are extinct at this point. And so it's harder. You just have to work harder for some parts of Scripture. But we're not per permitted to discard any passage as irrelevant. All passages are given uh, to lead us to maturity. Fact after fact, truth after truth, all given by an infinitely wise God. Now beyond that comes the process of theology. Theology is made by a combination of sound exegesis, understanding a passage properly, and logic. Logic. Those things go together. If a is true and B is true, then C must be true. That's how theology is done. And it's done well if the logic is sound and the exegesis was done properly. You get good conclusions. The conclusions are not directly found in the Bible, but they come of necessity from the Bible. Does that make sense? That's how theology is done. All right, so... Um, you get some basic facts that come, like the elements of the periodic table, and they combine to make all the molecules there are in the universe. But those are the basic elements. And so in the same way, you get the idea of, of this concept from this passage and this concept from this passage. You put them together, you get a compound of truth. And that's how you do theology. And how long will that go on? The rest of your life. Just learning and learning and putting things together. When I wrote my book on heaven, that's, it was a work of theology. I was seeking to take sound ex, uh, exegesis, actual statements made, and combine them with others to get a vision, a theological vision of the future. So one of the, the basic concepts I got in that book was heaven is about the glory of God. What is that? It's a, it's a radiant display of the perfections or attributes of God. Okay, so we'll be, we'll be uh, basking in the glory of God. Then I started to understand that my conception of the glory of God itself was essential to that, that I would understand how God is glorious. Then the next theological insight that came in was that I would never be omniscient. What that meant was that I would forever be able to learn new things about the glory of God. And that pointed toward a dynamic heaven of learning the glory of God, step by step, you see. Now, if you push back at any of that, it's like, all right, let's say, I would say, heaven is not about the glory of God. Well, I've got direct verses in Revelation that say that it is. The new Jerusalem is radiant with the glory of God. So there it is. That's easy. The statement, I will never be omniscient, therefore I'm always able to learn, is a theological statement. I don't have any direct statement on it, but do you want to push back on that? You say, no, actually, I think... We will become omniscient. Well, then you're a Mormon. All right? That's what the Mormons taught. What, what he was, we are. What he is, we may become. That's Mormonism, friends. We're going to become gods. Well, I deny that. So, therefore, I will never be omniscient. And you know what that means? Heaven's going to be pretty exciting. It's going to be pretty dynamic, and I'll be forever learning the glory of God. That's pretty exciting. Now, all that just an excursus into theology. Sound exegesis and logic gets you to theological truths. Clear example of this is the doctrine of the Trinity. There is no Trinity verse. It's theology. It's put together. There is one God and only one God. The Father is the one God. The Son is the one God. The Spirit is the one God. There are not three gods, so you just end up with the doctrine of the Trinity. That's how the theology is done. Well, it's not just theology. It's a whole bunch of those kinds of theological works, etc., on every topic. Like something practical. How should I spend my money? All right? Um, here's an important question for people that have a surplus of money. You have more money than you need in order to stay alive. What should I do with the surplus? The Bible seems to say there are two good things you can do with the surplus. Give it away in service to the gospel and save it for your own future. That seems to be biblical. I've got verses below each of those, right? Now you ask me, how much of each? I'm like, all right, I don't know. 
all right? But that's where wisdom comes in, and that's where James tells you to seek wisdom from God, etc. So that's how theology is done. It all starts with biblical precepts uh, and logic, all right? Now there's this image in my book of a forest rock versus a river rock. These are just, just a picture of sanctification. And uh, you could imagine like pulling a, a rock out of the, floor, uh, the forest floor and it's covered with dirt and all that. Imagine it's up in the granite state of New Hampshire, which is where I was when I had this idea. And if you were to swish it around in the river, you could get all the dirt off it pretty quickly and it would become a wet, clean rock, but it would still be jagged and crystalline. If you, you know, scraped it on your cheek, you might cut your cheek. But if you were to reach into the river for a river rock and pull it out, the significant difference would be obvious. If you were to, uh, you know, put it on your cheek or on the back of your hand, it wouldn't cut you. Why? Because it's completely smooth like glass. Well, why is that? Because it's been in the river. Okay, well, suppose you took that forest rock and put it in the river and go eat lunch and then come back and get it out if you're able to find it. Is it a river rock? No, it's still really pretty much a forest rock at that point. So what does it have to do? Just be in the river a long time. How long? I don't know. <laughs> Has anybody ever studied this? It's just sand rubbing over it. I'm thinking decades, but I don't know. I mean, long, long, long time. In the goodness of God, we don't have to wait decades, but my, my image here is taking your brain, your mind, and immersing it in the river of truth that is the Bible immersing it constantly. So how do you do that? Just daily quiet time, what you do with your drive time, what you do with your thought life. I would commend memorizing scriptures. You can meditate on it while you walk down the hall at work or something like that. You're like, you're basically saying like all the time, I'm saying, yeah, redeem the time. Let your mind be immersed in the river of truth and you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what I'm, I'm uh, advocating here, Romans 12, 2. Another key verse for me on understanding this is that Christ has the power to open your mind to Scripture. Someone read Luke 24 for us. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. That's an amazing verse. Kenny, what do you get out of that? That's Jesus talking to his disciples. He opened their mind so they could understand the Scriptures. They needed him to give them understanding, otherwise they would have read it and maybe drawn some conclusions and correct it. Absolutely. I think this is awesome. Jesus has that kind of power over your brain. And, and so you could say, look, I'm reading it, but I don't understand it. Ask the Lord to open your mind. The psalmist says this directly in Psalm 119.18, I think it is, open my mind or eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Open my eyes, I think that's the eyes of the heart, help me to see new things in the word that I haven't seen before. Jesus has the power to do that, to open your mind. Just like he had the power over, over Pharaoh to harden his heart, he has the power of ours to heal our minds and our hearts. So that you read and you see things. And the things you see are insights. They're true things that you haven't seen before. And Jesus has the power to do that. He has the power to open your mind. So as you go to the scripture, you should pray for that kind of insight. Now Christ himself is the, the center of scripture. The Alpha and the Omega of our faith in Christ comes from from Scripture. There's an indissoluble link between the written Word and faith in the living Word, Christ. John 20, it says, uh, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. This is really interesting. This has to do with the physical evidence of the resurrection at the actual tomb. We're talking about Peter and John that resurrection morning went, they saw the stone roll, moved away from the entrance, uh, the grave clothes were there, wholly undisturbed in their original position. It's a miracle, because it was a resinous, sticky substance, aromatic substance that they used to wrap it up, and, and he like came up out of the linens. And through the wall of the tomb, body's gone, linens are there, the head coverings folded up, in a separate position, stones removed. And John saw the physical evidence. He saw and believed. What does that mean to you? He saw and believed. That's all it says in the text. He saw and believed. Believed what? 
in the resurrection and probably not just that, just in John's gospel, you know, we're going past just resurrection. If Christ is risen, then who is Jesus? He's God, Savior. He's everything, right? John says he saw and believed. Then look at the next statement, John 20, verse 9. Someone read it. It's right there on the page for you, 20, verse 9. Why do you think he added that statement, that extra statement? He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Christ had to rise from the dead. I think in a way the physical evidence was so compelling that even without understanding this is true, this happened. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Do you think it's important that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Is that going to be important for you? Okay. On what basis? Would you like to go to the physical tomb and look at the grave clothes? There's four different places in Jerusalem you could choose from. What's my point in saying that? Four different places. Is it possible that any one of those four might be the actual place? Not likely, but possible. Is it guaranteed that you'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt that's the right place? No chance. All right? In any case, is that going to be the basis of your faith that Christ is risen. No, it's a tourist site. How could you possibly know? Therefore, how are you going to believe that Christ is risen? Scripture and Scripture alone. It's the only way. And Jesus said it to Thomas later in that same chapter, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. I'm going to ask the same question. On what basis? On what basis are you going to not see and yet believe? The scripture, it's the very next thing he says in that chapter. Right after the doubting Thomas thing, he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing may have life in his name. So scripture is the alpha, the beginning of your faith in Christ. It's also the omega and every letter in between. Every moment of growth and development you will have in this world in your walk with Jesus will be based on Scripture. It will start with Scripture. Alright, so this morning I have the privilege of preaching Mark 8, 1 through 10 on the second feeding. Alright, the second time Jesus fed a crowd. Interesting passage for me. It's like, I thought we just did this a few weeks ago. Alright, but it's in there. I'll take it that the Lord wanted us to have two feeding accounts, and so I'm going to walk through that. But fundamentally, it's to strengthen your faith and mine in Jesus. That's why I want to do it. Does that make sense? Because Scripture is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last of our faith in Jesus. And every moment starts with Scripture. Um, scripture is given to save us. For infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith comes by hearing the Word, and it develops the same way, all right? Uh, and you continue to grow. Uh, so therefore, also, Jesus wants us to remain in his word. So I'm going to read John 15, 7, and 8. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. If you were to ask me in all the Bible what is the most compelling scriptural evidence that I should memorize scripture, I would give you John 15, 7, and 8. Do you see the value of scripture memorization in John 15, 7, and 8? Where do you, where do you see it? It doesn't say anything about memorization. My words you. What does that mean? If my words, plural, by the way, my nouns, adjectives, adverbs, paragraphs, if those remain, dwell, live, abide. How do you get memorization out of that? What else could it mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, I agree. You know, what else could it mean? But, you know, it's like I don't want to force it on you, force an in, in, interpretation here. The point is that these words are just alive in you. I think it at least starts with you knowing what they are. I don't think that's enough, but it, you at least know what his words are. 
And then it goes on from there to start developing and expanding in you. So I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Oh, you of little faith. Those are the words. If you have them memorized, you can meditate on them and they start to expand and become truth for you. But that's what it means to have his words abiding in you and you're able to walk with Jesus throughout the day by means of the, the ministry of the word. So that's, that's it. That's how you, uh, and then the outcome is that you bear much fruit, which is the point. It's why God left you here in this world is to bear fruit, to grow the fruit of the spirit in your own character and then fruit in other people's lives. We're here to bear fruit. That's it. Now, we need constant reminding, and by the way, that is the theme of this morning's sermon, all right? The, the theme is, why does God repeat and repeat and repeat things in our lives? It's because we forget, and we need stuff done again and again. And so that's going to be what we're getting out of Mark 8, 1 through 10, a little bit of a f uh, preview. The reason that, that there are six accounts of feedings of huge crowds in the Gospels are because we need the repetition. We need the stuff reminded. Why do we do the Lord's Supper again and again like we'll do today? Because the repeated, the reminders are necessary for us, etc. And we need that. So we got to go over some of these things again and again. Read John 3.16. I know what it says. Read it again. You just need the repetition. You need the reminders. So we'll talk about that in the sermon today. And the ministry of the Word produces spiritual maturity. Someone read Ephesians 4 for us, if you, 11 through 13. who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, that, that last one, mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that's the goal of sanctification right there. That's just another way of saying the same thing. And the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, all five have one thing in common, the, the ministry of the Word. They are a delivery system of the Word of God. Apostles and prophets is the scripture, for me, equals scripture. Apostles and prophets, evangelists take the scripture out on the road to distant places, and pastor teachers, like myself, settle in in a locality and teach the word. The end of all of that process is spiritual maturity in the, in the people that receive the word. Okay? Alright, so that's factual knowledge. Any questions? I'm brutally behind schedule this morning. But I had no chance anyway. I had to do two main headings in one hour and I'm just not wired that way. So we'll do the best we can. But anyway, factual knowledge, be in the word. Alright, let's keep going. Uh, next is experiential knowledge. And what is that? Uh, fundamentally, experiential knowledge is gained from living in God's world. Just experiences you have from living in God's world. They teach you things, all right? Um, the theater of God's glory, that's what John Calvin called the physical universe. You just see God's glory. And also another illustration I use is a university of Christian experience. So basically you're matriculated in, in a university of what I would say providence. Um, that God teaches you by providential occurrences. By the way, I want to, I want to say something. Uh, Andy and Wes and I meet every Sunday morning to get ready for the worship service, to talk through the service, make certain. So we had a fun moment this morning. Uh, it just so happened that my sermon on the feeding of the 4,000 lines up with the Lord's Supper. Wes seems to think that the original teaching I did a number of weeks, months ago in Mark 6 also lined up with the Lord's Supper. You can't make this stuff up. I didn't plan it. I didn't orchestrate it. I write my sermon six weeks in advance. I didn't know that I would be here, but God wanted me to teach on the feeding the same day that we do the Lord's Supper. Interesting. At any rate, providence is God's control over earthly circumstances. Stuff that happens to you. It's none of it is an accident. It's all intentional. God orchestrates conversations and sequences of events and weather and health things and all of that to train you in the word, to train you in your soul, to get you ready for heaven. 
Um, and that's what I'm talking about by experiential knowledge. There's just some things you have to have to live through. So let's uh, let's go ahead. I'm, I can't go through every word on your hand up here. Let's talk about examples of learning by experience. There's numbers. This was a lot of fun when I was writing the book. Uh, what are some ways that God's people learned by experience? So one of them was uh, Moses's arms lifted in prayer. Remember how they were. Um, fighting a battle. Joshua's down there on the battlefield against the Amalekites, I think. And Moses went up on a hillside to watch the battle, and at some point he felt led by God to lift up his arms in prayer. And uh, what happened? Do you remember that story? They started to win. Okay, then what happened? He got tired, and then what happened? He lowered his arms, and then what happened? They started to lose. I, if I'm him, I'm putting up one arm to see what happens then. It's like we're 50-50. Yeah, I mean, we're, I don't know. <laughs> Left arm, right arm. I'm just like a scientist. I want to find out, you know, halfway up. Up for five minutes and then take a rest. Uh, none of that happened. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, his friends got alongside him and put some rocks under him and lifted up. That's a feedback loop. All right, let me give you a plain example. This is the simple one. We talked earlier today about the value of a quiet time. I've been a Christian since October of 1982. I've had lots of days. Some of them I've had quiet times and some of them I haven't. Do you think there's been a feedback loop on days in which I've had quiet times and days I haven't? Josh, any sense of that feedback loop? Yeah, Talk about me. All right, guess about me. You don't have to say anything about yourself. I presume guessing about you is also guessing about me as well. You know, okay. the days where there's no quiet time, you know, oftentimes I will experience those, you know, Uh, anger moments or those moments where I'm getting short with my family or my children and I'm like, ah, oh, wish I had that quiet time now. Yeah. I've been a lot more patient. Exactly. Note to self, don't skip the quiet time. It affects how I am, it affects my attitude, I find do everything without complaining or arguing isn't happening in my life, I'm actually complaining and arguing more. Um, it's just a different kind of day when I don't feed on God's word in the morning. Now it's not that simple. It's not just have a quiet time, have a great day. God isn't simple with us. But there's basic principles of when I can have a quiet time, I'm going to have one. That's just going to be a given in my life. Does that make sense? So there's a lot of this kind of feedback loop that goes on. There's other examples of practical. Uh, like the feeding today, and we're going to talk about this, God willing, next time. But in Mark 8, 17 through 21, I won't read it. But you remember in that occasion, this is next week's sermon, God willing, but they're arguing about having forgotten to bring bread. Remember? And Jesus says, why are you even talking about this? And then he cites the history that we've been through this, right? Remember the 5,000? He walks through the details. And he makes them answer. All right, now the 4,000. Remember all the details. Then how is it that you're arguing about having no bread? The, the implied concept in Jesus' mind is you should have learned by experience. Do you see that? Having walked through the feedings, you should know I am able to feed your stomach. Stop worrying about it. It's not why you're here. We're here for other things. So beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod and Sadducees. Let's talk about the doctrine. Let's talk about that's what I want to talk about, not about your tummies. And so that's a feedback. You live through it. You should have learned. All right. And by the way, he believes they should have faith as a ba uh, uh, on the basis of that experience. So what that teaches me is that, that, that it's not just the word that builds faith. Experience builds faith as well. It all works together. So word plus experience builds faith. You just live through certain things and there's an obligation to learn from those experiences. That's all. So experiential knowledge, you walk through that. And then I cited this last week. Paul has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Christian contentment is absolutely learned by experience. It is not learned from a book. You have to, you have to go through suffering. You have to go through feasting. You have to go through all of these things and learn how to do it uh, through faith in Christ. That's what, uh, it's a very good example of learning by experience. Um, providence, let's just keep going. All right, let's talk about discipline for sin. All right, one of the things God wants you to learn is how, how dangerous and poisonous sin is. And the way you learn that is by his disciplines, his loving disciplines. So he talks about this in Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. If God doesn't discipline you for sin, you're not one of his children. You're illegitimate. 
You are not a child because the worst thing that God can do to any human being in this world by far is to give them over to their sin. There is nothing worse God can do in this world to just let them sin and let them enjoy it and let them prosper in it and let them think they're doing well by it until the day they die and go to hell. So Romans 1 makes it plain that God gave them over is the worst thing. So therefore, one of the best things God can do for his children is to not give you over to your sin. And how does he do that? By disciplining you for it. He makes your sin painful to you. And I think the way it does is, because you're one of, the, you're one of God's children, if you should sin, if you should break his word and violate your conscience, the scripture reveals that the Holy Spirit is grieved thereby. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What does that mean, the grief of the Spirit? How do you understand the grieving of the Spirit? What does the word grief mean? What happens when someone dies? Just the feeling of loss, painful loss. Sorrow, pain. So that implies that that's what the Holy Spirit feels when we sin. Is it possible for a Christian for a while to be out of step with the Spirit on the issue of that grief? Absolutely. We can enjoy sin for a little while while the Spirit is immediately grieved by it. But if you're a child of God, He will bring you down into His grief. He will make you feel His grief over your sin because He loves you. And you will see it from His point of view. And you will then hate that sin like he does and grow by it. Now how does he do that? Disciplines. What are disciplines? What is discipline for sin? I mean, what does that mean? D to be disciplined for sin. Well, there's a corrective element to it, so it's not uh, like judgment, but it's more um, for our good. Okay. So, so what, what would be an example of a possible discipline that could happen? Takes away your peace takes away your peace, you have no peace, you're filled with anxiety and fears and things like that. What else? In Psalm 32, David talks about the stretch of time from when he sinned to when he confessed. And it says that as he did, he wasted away and your hand was heavy on me as in the heat of summer. So there are physiological as aspects, right? Physiological. So do you think that illness, for example, could be a discipline for sin? That God could make you sick? Definitely. Does it mean every time you get sick, it's a discipline from God? Not at all. Not at all. But to some degree. You could say, for example, Paul's thorn in the flesh, right? That was more of a warning than it was a discipline for sin. It was a warning to not sin. But he says, to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I asked him to remove it, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So that's a different kind of discipline. Maybe it's heading the sin off at the pass, but still it was a painful trial in his life, probably physical, that God could have healed him, but didn't. So here's the way I understand discipline. Anything you care about in this life is fair game for discipline. All right? So look at the book of Job. What would that include? There are b three big categories I talked about week after week in Job. What are the three categories of his suffering? Health, finances, and family. So are all three of those open to the Lord to do what he wants with? Yes, they all belong to him. All of them. And so that's what discipline is. Now, how, how is that a matter of learning by experience? You're supposed to learn that the painful thing you're going through is because of sin and it causes you to hate sin and put it to death. That's the, the feedback loop on that. It's a life teaching uh, and suffering is part of that. So uh, sometimes the suffering is discipline for sin, sometimes it's just suffering in this world, but it's directly linked to spiritual maturity. James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you will be Mature, all right? Mature is Christ-like. So in other words, you will not become Christ-like without painful trial. It's impossible to become mature without suffering. 
and so that's part of it. So not all suffering is discipline for sin, but suffering is essential to Christian growth. Okay? Um, so that's uh, spiritual experience. You can read all the things that, um, that I wrote. Uh, one other thing is uh, powerful uh, spiritual experience. This was not in my book, but I wanted to add it. Um, it's, it was implied, but when you venture out boldly in new patterns of service to the Lord, such as a mission trip or some kind of ministry to the poor and needy or something like that, you commit yourself to care for orphans or to go overseas or something like that, you will grow a lot. If you pull back from that and lead a more kind of in the bubble self, self kind of oriented life, you will not grow as much. And so the more you venture out in active patterns of service, the more you're going to grow. Um, and I would commend that to you. Does that make sense? So that's experiential growth. Now we have eight minutes to do the entire faith box. So that's pretty exciting. Any questions of uh, uh, factual and experiential? All right, let's keep going. Let's talk about faith. We'll get as far as we can, and we'll pick it up next week. Faith, a uh, strong sense of the reality of in invisible spiritual truths, past, present, and future, a vibrant hope and a bright future based on the promises of God, a deep and detailed conviction of personal sin, a firm and consistent reliance on Christ, and a, a consistent sense of practical guidance by the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean by faith, those five things. There may be other elements of faith, but I've not found any that aren't basically covered with those five. Um, so let's walk through them. First of all, in general, I have uh, seen a similarity between faith and sight. Faith is the eyesight of the soul. I think this is a helpful uh, analogy. It's not complete, it's not perfect, but it is helpful. At least it starts that way. And there's a clear comparison uh, between faith and sight, such as 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live or walk by faith, not by sight. All right, so those are things that are clearly being compared. There's a similarity between faith and sight in that sense, but our Christian walk is a walk of faith. So what sight does in the physical world, so faith does in the spiritual world. It's similar in that regard. I think of it this way as Jesus said in Matthew 5, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Do you get a sense Jesus isn't just talking about physical eyesight there? I think he's talking about the eyes of the heart. Ephesians 1.18 speaks of the eyes of the heart. And I think that is faith. If, you're, if you have faith, if you have, have good eyesight, your whole world will be filled with the light of truth. You will see things as they really are. And I think that's what faith is. It shows you things as they really are, um, as they really are in the spiritual realms. Uh, Hebrews 11:27. by faith Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered, I like another translation, as seeing him who is invisible. That's an interesting statement. What do you think of that, that, that phrase, as seeing him who is invisible? Hebrews 11 is a faith chapter. So that is the eyesight of the soul. You're able to see him who is invisible. Maybe the author means Christ at that point because it says he considered suffering with the people of God uh, uh, for, the, for the riches of Christ greater than all the riches of Egypt. He actually says Christ there. So he could see the invisible Christ even before Jesus was born. There was a, a life of faith that Moses was living, the author gives us. Jesus said Moses saw, did he say Moses saw my day? Abraham. Oh, Abraham. Okay. Abraham saw my day. And how did he do that? By faith. In this way, do you not see the similarity between us and Old Testament saints? They saw an invisible Messiah who is yet to come. We see an invisible Messiah who has already come, but we don't see him, and who is yet to come a second time. It's the same thing. It's a life of faith. It's Abraham's faith. That's the same thing we have now, seeing an invisible Savior. So that's uh, it's beautiful. Uh, the eyes of the heart, I think that's faith. All right, so let's talk about elements, and we'll just get as far as we can. First of all, certainty of invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. Faith enables us to be absolutely certain that the things taught in the Bible about invisible spiritual realities are true. So we start with the past. All the history related in the Bible is actually true. 
beginning with creation itself. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We're told in Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. By faith you believe in creation. I'm not saying there's not scientific evidence. There is. But it's still ultimately going to be by faith you believe in a creator. By faith you believe in creation. So that's the first historical fact. God made everything. And all the history that flows from that, you believe it's actually true. All right? Actually true. That includes a historical Adam. That includes a historical flood. That includes a historical call of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees in the beginning of the Jewish nation. And all the history that followed uh, the Jewish people, tracing out that one people, their history in Egypt, their history in the desert, their history in the conquest of the promised land, their history going on. You believe it all happened. But the most important history of all is the history of Jesus. Does it actually matter whether Christ was physically raised from the dead or not? Does it matter to Paul? How do you know it matters whether it's just history or myth? Suppose like some, you know, uh, classic liberal uh, teachers did in the 19th century say it doesn't matter if it's historically true. What matters is how it makes you feel and how it makes you live. What would the Apostle Paul say about that? We would be pitied. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, there is no Christianity. Our faith is useless. So history matters more to Christianity than any other religion in the world. It actually does matter to us whether this stuff ever happened or not. But by faith, we believe it did. We, we, by faith, we think it actually occurred. All right? All of the history of the Old Testament, we think actually is true. All right? Uh, then, present. Uh, by faith, we see the present invisible spiritual world. So that, what would that include? The present invisible spiritual world. <coughs> Angels and demons, like in this room? Yes, <laughs> potentially. I wouldn't think the demons would give us a break anywhere. <laughs> That's just a thought. Um, but yeah, angels and demons. But more than that, the triune God. God on his throne ruling the universe. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. Jesus at the right hand of God. Hebrews 2 says, at present, we do not see everything subject to him, speaking of Jesus, but we see Jesus, who is made for a little while lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. That's an interesting statement. We see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor. How do we do that? By faith. It's the only way you can. First Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. So by faith, you see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, ruling over the universe. All authority in heaven and earth is his, and he's ruling over everything for the benefit of his people, the church. That's Ephesians 1. You see it by faith. Is that important? Oh, it's incredibly important. Jesus runs the thing. That's more important than the midterm elections, dear friends. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is ruling over everything as he has every generation of unfolding history. It's huge. All right, what about the future? We see the future. What does that mean? By faith, we see the future things as promised and threatened in Scripture. What do I mean by that? What's, what are some future things that by faith you know? Second coming. Jesus is coming in glory to judge uh, the nations. What else? New heaven, new earth is coming. New Jerusalem, I talked about earlier, radiant with the glory of God that's coming. All right? Resurrection, your resurrection body is a future fact. So no matter how poorly you feel today, no matter what medical issues you're going through, you know a resurrection body is coming and it's going to be powerful and glorious and incorruptible, that's what's coming. What about from now until the day you die? Does the Bible say anything about that span of time? If you're a Christian, from now until you die, what are some things the Bible definitely tells you about your own future here on earth? I will never leave you or forsake you. Beautiful. That's true. How about this one? He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. You will never be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's pretty powerful. And there's a lot of other promises to cover from now until the day you die. It's 
pretty awesome. So that's past, present, future. Uh, let's do one more and then we'll have to stop. Okay? Uh, the assurance of things hoped for. All right, so Hebrews 11.1 1 gives a definition of faith. It's not comprehensive. It's important that you know it's not comprehensive, but both halves of the equation are true. When I say it's not comprehensive, it means there are other things to faith than just the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. But they are important. Let's take both of them as, uh, as uh, facts about faith. We'll just do one of them. We'll talk about the next one next week. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That means a settled confidence that the good things that God has promised about your future will definitely happen. Assurance of things hoped for. Therefore, you should be filled with hope. You should be filled with hope. What is that? A feeling or sense inside your heart that the future is bright based on the promises of God. You should be filled with that. Why is that important for the Christian life? To be filled with a certainty that the good things God has promised about your future will definitely come to pass. Why would that be very helpful for you in your Christian life? Say again. Life is hard. That's right. And if someone is buoyant and filled with hope, there's a joy in that, isn't there? There is a, a confidence and a happiness, just a simple happiness, even if you have, you know, uh, a very serious medical condition that will take you out of this world, you can still live the rest of your days filled with hope, knowing that this world is not all there is. Why would that be important, let's say, for the people around you? So David, you and I talked about this the other day. You're an oncologist. Why would it be helpful for a Christian who's got terminal cancer to be filled with hope? There could be entire parts of their family where um, people are starting to think about death for the first time and what it means to live their entire life for the first time. And seeing the testimony of Christians finish a race strong. Yeah. Um, but seeing that firsthand, how that can affect their adult children, it reverberates to grandchildren. And those are memories okay with them for the rest of their life. Amen. So the call on us is to die well. And dying well means to die filled with hope. To die as if you believe in the resurrection. And you can fill grandkids, grandsons and granddaughters, nieces and nephews, nurses, doctors who are unbelievers. They can see the hope that you have and ask you to give a reason for it. Why are you so filled with hope? Because I believe Christ rose from the dead and I believe he's going to bring me with him too. So that's what assurance of things hoped for mean. A spiritually mature man or woman is filled with hope. They're a hope-filled person because they have so many good promises from God. So let's uh, break there and we'll pick up at conviction of things not seen. Andy Wynn, would you mind closing in prayer for us? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.